Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, October 9th. In today's news, the FBI charges six men with plotting to kidnap Michigan's governor. A top Republican fundraiser is charged with secretly being a foreign agent for China. And the president gets passed over for the Nobel Peace Prize again. But first, the big idea. Calling into Sean Hannity's Fox News show on Thursday night and coughing frequently, President Trump said he is going to try to do a rally on Saturday night in Florida if his staff can pull off the logistics. He said he wants to have another rally in Pennsylvania on Sunday night, adding, quote, I feel so good. But even as Trump asserted that he's, quote, clean and doesn't believe he's contagious any longer, his doctors have offered only limited information about his condition. It remains unclear when the president last tested negative for the virus, a question White House officials dodged for a fifth consecutive day on Thursday. White House doctors have also declined to release basic information about the viral load detected within the president. White House physician Sean Conley, who has released only brief memos describing Trump's status since Monday, said earlier in the week that he would like to monitor the president through this coming weekend to ensure his health does not relapse. On Thursday, Conley says he believes Trump's on track to safely return to public engagements on Saturday. It appeared that he released that memo under pressure from the president. While Trump has been working from the Oval Office, many West Wing staffers are working remotely and steering clear of the president and other colleagues who are infected. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and Trump's social media director and former caddy Dan Scavino are among the few officials who are spending FaceTime with Trump right now. Vice President Pence's aides believe that he fared well in his sole debate this year in Salt Lake City on Wednesday night, and some of them were incredibly frustrated yesterday that Trump spent the day creating a fresh set of controversial headlines that quickly eclipsed his running mate's time in the spotlight. The president announced that he will not participate in the October 15th debate in Miami after organizers announced it would be held virtually to protect the safety of everyone involved. Trump's initial response to call into the Fox Business Network and announce he would not go came before he talked the issue over with any of his advisors. Tolu Olorunipa, Ashley Parker, and Josh Dossi report that some of Trump's top aides are struggling to get Trump to understand that a debate, which is likely to draw more than 60 million viewers, is far more impactful than a rally that is exclusively on Fox News where the audience would be less than 4 million. Advisors have been conveying to Trump the importance of using his time in isolation to project a sense of compassion and to present himself as a sympathetic character. Instead, they're upset that Trump continues to act like a brawler and create damaging headlines. The latest damaging headline the president created was during that phone interview with Fox Business earlier on Thursday. He said he may have contracted the coronavirus from Gold Star families who visited the White House for a ceremony because he said they couldn't keep themselves from hugging and kissing him. Meanwhile, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Republican from Kentucky, said he has not gone to the White House intentionally in several weeks because of its lax public safety measures amid the pandemic. McConnell said in an event in his home state where he's running for re-election that he has avoided the White House since August 6th because his impression was that it was not safe. The Senate went into recess this week after three of his senators tested positive for the coronavirus, including two who had been at crowded, unmasked events at the White House. And people 
who Trump may have exposed to the virus scattered across America, where they may have then given it to others. With no systematic effort to trace or advise the hundreds of guests at the Rose Garden ceremony to announce Amy Coney Barrett as his Supreme Court nominee and other events like the Gold Star family event in the surrounding days, many made their way home and resumed busy schedules. Isaac Stanley Becker, Roz Helderman, Josh, and Amy Gardner tabulated that guests of the president and his campaign returned to at least 20 different states, in almost every case by plane. They visited college campuses. They sat across the dinner table from elderly parents. They attended church services. And they addressed crowds at indoor events, including a convention on the topic of election security. Upon learning that Trump may have exposed them to the contagion, some chose to go into quarantine or get tested. Others waited instead to see if they developed any symptoms, despite months of warnings from scientists that it is possible to be contagious without feeling ill. And in many cases, the attendees said they're not worried at all because of the strong health precautions taken by the White House, despite the outbreak. Obviously, that was falsely placed confidence. And now... Trump is pushing the FDA to quickly clear antibody treatments, erroneously calling them a cure. Trump and Meadows, his chief of staff, have called FDA Commissioner Steve Hahn to urge him to accelerate the agency's review of a promising but unproven COVID therapy that the president received over the weekend at Walter Reed and credits with his rapid recovery. The drug is a cocktail of laboratory-made antibodies from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. Regeneron's CEO is one of Trump's golfing buddies. Trump is also pushing for the authorization of a similar drug made by Eli Lilly, which is led by major Republican donors. Both drug companies applied for emergency clearance on Wednesday. Critics say that by inserting himself again into the approval process for medical treatments, as he did with hydroxychloroquine and convalescent blood plasma, Trump risks further undermining trust in regulators and confusing Americans, since his own hopeful story may not reflect how the drug works in others. There are also side effects. We don't know to what degree Trump is experiencing them. Experts say Trump's overstating the evidence, in this case boasting that the drugs are a panacea, despite the fact that the evidence so far is suggestive that they're helpful in reducing symptoms over several days, not 24 hours, and reducing the levels of virus in people's body and decreasing the need for follow-up medical visits, but they don't work for everyone every time. His actions also risk disappointing Americans who may be unable to access the drugs. Both the Regeneron and Eli Lilly drugs are being tested still in clinical trials, and no one knows if the former helped Trump recover, whether it did so in addition to all the other treatments he received, or whether he would have recovered on his own as part of the natural course of the disease. After the NIH's former top vaccine expert, Rick Bright, resigned earlier this week, He has written an op-ed in our paper explaining why. He said that Trump has so heavily politicized the pandemic response that there was nothing left for him to do. And he warns in the op-ed, quote, The country is flying blind into what could be the darkest winter in modern history. Undoubtedly, millions more Americans will be infected with the coronavirus and influenza. Many thousands will die. Now, more than ever before, the public needs to be able to rely on honest, non-politicized, and unmanipulated public health guidance from career scientists. And Bright says they're not going to get that from the Trump administration. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as this week comes to an end. Number one, 
Federal and state officials revealed yesterday that they thwarted a plot to kidnap Michigan's Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, unsealing charges against 13 people who they say were involved in various plans to attack law enforcement, overthrow the government, and try to ignite a new civil war. Officials say the conspiracy, which was supposed to come to fruition before the election, seemed to be an ominous indication of how America's civil unrest has energized violent extremists. The plotters, according to an FBI affidavit, were angry about coronavirus restrictions that Whitmer had imposed, and they trained together with firearms and experimented with explosives. The arrests come as federal and local law enforcement are particularly attuned to the possibility of politically motivated violence in the final weeks before the election. Before this crew could attack, law enforcement moved in, arresting some as they literally were pooling money to go buy more explosives, allegedly. Six of those were charged federally, and the rest were charged in state court, though officials announced the cases together. The FBI is investigating potential domestic terrorists around the country and trying to determine whether any of these people are planning acts of violence before the election. Let's hope they get them. Trump has attacked Whitmer for months, and he tweeted in all caps back in April to, quote, liberate Michigan. In an afternoon news conference, Whitmer defended the restrictions she's imposed while taking aim at Trump. She noted that just last week during the debate, the president refused to condemn white supremacists and hate groups like the two Michigan militia groups that were plotting to kidnap her. The FBI said in the affidavit that it became aware that people were discussing an overthrow of the U.S. government from social media postings that agents stumbled upon in early 2020. And then in June, two of the people who were charged yesterday met with more than a dozen other co-conspirators in Ohio. In that meeting, the FBI alleges that the group discussed both peaceful and violent tactics and ultimately decided that they needed to increase their numbers in order for their plots to be effective. A member of the group, Adam Fox, then allegedly contacted another local militia group that the FBI already had under heavy surveillance with an informant on the inside over concern that it was plotting to kill police officers. That's how the FBI started looking into Fox and his crew. In a June 14th phone call that the FBI says it has on tape, Fox allegedly said he needed 200 men to storm the Capitol building in Lansing to take hostages, including the governor. He said they would try Whitmer for treason in a mock trial before the election. Trump tweeted that Whitmer has done a, quote, terrible job, this is last night, and chastised her for not offering gratitude to, quote, my Justice Department for foiling the plot against her, even though she had profusely thanked the U.S. attorneys involved in the case and praised the FBI agents as fearless. Number two, a top Republican fundraiser, Elliot Broidy, was charged yesterday with acting as a foreign agent. Broidy has been charged in a criminal information with conspiring to act as a foreign agent as he lobbied President Trump himself and senior members of the administration on behalf of Chinese government and Malaysian government interests, an indication that he is likely to soon plead guilty in the case to resolve the allegations against him. Prosecutors unsealed the 31-page filing against Broidy on Thursday, outlining how they believe he took millions of dollars in undisclosed cash to end a U.S. investigation into a billion-dollar embezzlement of a Malaysian state investment fund and separately worked to return outspoken Chinese exile Guo Wengai to his home country. 
Brody, according to court documents and people familiar with the matter, directly made entreaties to high-level people in the Trump administration and others close to it, including then-White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus, former Deputy Campaign Chairman Rick Gates, and then Trump himself. Guo is a vocal online critic of the Chinese regime and is wanted by authorities in Beijing on charges of fraud, blackmail, and bribery. He's denied all those charges and said they're politically motivated. In the past few years, Guo has been closely aligned with Steve Bannon, Trump's former campaign chief and former chief White House strategist. Bannon was on Guo's yacht off the coast of Westbrook, Connecticut, when he was arrested last month on charges that he defrauded donors to a group that claimed to be building a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. Allegedly, he was pocketing the money for himself and his co-conspirators. Now, Brody met with Trump at the White House in October 2017. Prosecutors allege that in a show of influence, Brody personally asked the president to play a round of golf with the then-Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak, who was later convicted on charges in Malaysia related to this fraud and embezzlement and sentenced to 12 years in prison. Despite Brody's entreaties to high-ranking White House and National Security Council officials, and according to prosecutors, Trump agreed to play the round of golf, no game ever actually took place, but the prime minister got a meeting with Trump at the White House afterward. It's not been a great run for the guys that Trump installed to run fundraising efforts on his behalf at the RNC. Brody resigned as deputy finance chairman of the Republican National Committee back in 2018 after allegations emerged publicly that he paid a former Playboy centerfold $1.6 million in hush money to get her to stay silent about a sexual affair and his demand, according to her, that she get an abortion after he impregnated her. Trump's then personal attorney, Michael Cohen, arranged that settlement with the Playboy Bunny. The married Brady acknowledged this at the time. Cohen then, a few months later, resigned as the other deputy RNC finance chair because he was about to plead guilty to bank fraud, tax evasion, and campaign finance violations committed on Trump's behalf. Casino mogul Steve Wynn was the RNC finance chair at that time, but he too resigned in 2018 after being accused of sexual harassment and assault, accusations he denies. Another deputy finance chair of the RNC back in this period was Louis DeJoy, who is now mired in his own scandals as the postmaster general. So much for draining the swamp. Number three, the Nobel Peace Prize went this morning to the United Nations World Food Program for efforts to combat hunger amid the pandemic. The program, which was established in 1961, has become the primary international organization for folks dealing with hunger at a time when climate change and prolonged conflicts in the Middle East and Africa are exacerbating the challenge. Millions of folks in Syria and Yemen depend each month on the program for survival. The organization says that more than 800 million people in our world are chronically hungry, most of them live in conflict-stricken areas. The World Food Program has 17,000 staff spread out across the world in 80 countries, and it has more than 20 ships, 92 planes, and 5,600 trucks on the move every day. Announcing the prize in Oslo, Barrett Rees Anderson, the chair of the Norwegian Nobel Committee, said that they hoped the prize will spur governments around the world to contribute more to the operations of the organization, which says that at current funding levels, 265 million people globally will go hungry. She emphasized at length the need for multilateral cooperation to combat global challenges, including hunger and climate change, in what was an unmistakable reference to President Trump, 
who was questioned and criticized, among other groups, the UN, the European Union, the World Health Organization, and the World Trade Organization. Trump had been nominated for this prize by far-right Norwegian politicians, a fact he's been trumpeting in campaign commercials, but which carried no meaningful weight since a wide group of people are free to nominate whomever they wish. Indeed, hundreds of people were nominated for the prize. Trump has long sought this laurel, though given his unpopularity in Norway, where the decision is made, an award has always seemed like a long shot. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, October 9th. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick, and our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Hellman. Stay safe this weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast, Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.